Right, so good morning everyone. My name is Stephen Walker and I am obsessed with timekeeping, as you will soon see. So today, as I said, we're going to be having the two presentations back to back on pensions related topics. Um, first up, John Anderson will be known to most of us. His colleague is uh, from Signia is also with him, Stephen Empedocles. Empedocles, I got it, yes. It's his birthday. I really didn't want to mispronounce his uh, surname on, on his birthday, but these two gentlemen will be presenting their paper on the retirement income frontier and its application in the setting of uh, investment strategies at the retirement stage. The paper was quite interesting when I read it. They've also been awarded two uh, prizes, both the best paper overall and the best first-time author's paper. So I'm sure the presentation will also be quite enjoyable. I do look forward to it. So if we can give them a warm welcome, please. Also, I'm forgetting, I should be encouraging you to download, download the app if you haven't already done so. So please, please, please do tell people I did make that announcement. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Stephen, and good morning, everybody. I think the paper that we wrote actually started, the journey started about 12 months ago. And what happened then was a friend of mine's mother uh, needed some assistance in terms of what to do with retirement money and how to invest it. So what they did is they went to the, the market, they, got, uh, assisted, they asked a number of advisors what they should be doing. They went to quite a few advisors to make sure that you know, they, they look at different options, etc. What was interesting through that process is that here was someone who didn't have sufficient retirement capital to actually sustain uh, the income that they actually needed. The advice was purely uh, to provide living annuity with similar type strategies and actually investing in, in similar type things but at very high cost. So here's somebody that actually needed uh, life protection, so to protect for longevity because there was, in the family, people are living to 90, 100, you know, grandmothers still alive, etc. So that then spurred on you know, some of our thinking to, you know, why, why is that the case? Now, many of you would think that that's just a sample of one. You know, that we're actuaries, so therefore it's not statistically credible. And, uh, but what is actually happening in the industry? So economic theory would suggest that if a person doesn't have a bequest motive, it's actually best to fully annuitize because of the longevity protection. It provides you with that certainty. Yet, in South Africa, and we see also that most, most uh, pensioners actually want that certainty. So some surveys by very credible companies, uh, Just Retirement as well as uh, uh, Sunlum, confirm that the vast majority, anywhere between 86 and 87% of people, want that certainty of income. Yet, what are we seeing? The 2015 ASEAN statistics reveal that sales at retirement, so people approaching retirement, how do they convert that savings into an income? 90% use a living annuity with no actual longevity protection. Now, around the world, this phenomenon is called the annuity puzzle. So we actually have our own annuity puzzle in South Africa. And for many of you that have been here over the years, there have been many papers talking about you know, these types of things. It's not something that's new to you. But what we actually found is, you know, through scouring lots of research internationally and uh, you know, some of our own work, is we came across this uh, research that was done by the World Development. Uh, so it's called the World Development Report. Uh, it's called Mind, Society, and Behavior. 
And what it really does is it, it, it takes hundreds of studies from across the, the globe, looking at behavioral finance, it uses economists, psychologists, uh, and people who are doing experiments and using empirical actual experiments, not theory, to try and understand why people make the decisions that, they, that they're making. And they really break it up into three different components, three categories. The first is that pe people think socially. And we all know that. You know, you like to think similarly, you know, based on what your friends have said, based on what your grandfather said, he influenced how you think, and so we carry on over the generations. So people think socially. People think with mental models. We like to put things in boxes. That's the, the reality. And a good example of that is that in the savings industry in Kenya, um, you know, people actually needed to save for preventative uh, medicine, for malaria, but they actually found that they were not saving. And the reason they weren't is people were saying, I don't have enough money. So an experiment was done to give people a metal box, put it in the house uh, with a lock so you can't access it, and label it you know, with a pre preventative uh, uh, medicine. What's very interesting is savings for that specific uh, need increased by between 60 and 70%. So it just illustrates how people think with mental models, even in the face of you know, I don't have enough money, etc. The other thing, the third category is that people think automatically. So in the face of lots of complexity, people revert to thinking automatically. We like to think, we are very considerate, you know, we like to deliberate very carefully about things. Most of our cognitive and the way we think, it's actually automatically, which is influenced by uh, what people have said before, by mental models. Now, how is this applicable to South Africa and specifically at retirement? Well, thinking socially, people have become accustomed to high real returns. South Africa's had the highest real returns over the last hundred years. We know in the last while, okay, that's, it has been more muted, but people have been accustomed. So there's many generations of people that have talked about great returns, great shares, great things that they've, they've got. Also, investing has been popularized. If you look at a lot of the adverts out there uh, and marketing material, investing is popularized, not converting savings into income. And that's, that, that actually shapes how people think. The other thing is that there's mistrust in the, in the life insurance industry for very good reasons, for many years, lots of scandals, lots of things. And that hasn't helped people to trust that when they do go into, for example, uh, annuities, that their money will be looked after uh, safely. The other thing is that people look to other people. So intermediaries play a very important role, just like in my, in my friend's example. The intermediary shaped how advice was given. And the reality is in South Africa that all business models, or most of them, so there's very limited evidence that there's comprehensive frameworks being given to retirees to say, you must consider either living annuities or life or potentially combining these into one uh, uh, particular strategy. And the reason is that business models are geared towards uh, earning uh, revenue, specifically revenue on living annuities, which can continue for many years. So business models are geared, and that influences how things are actually uh, framed. Thinking with mental models, I've already talked about, uh, and the main thing there is that in South Africa, when you're at retirement, you're not asked, how must I take my million rand and convert it into an income. You're asked, how do you want to invest it? By automatically doing that, you already go down the path of shares, equities, you know, and bonds, cash, etc., without considering 
actual income pro providing uh, assets. And studies have actually shown that by changing the framing from an investment fra uh, framing to rather a consumption framing leads to a different kind of behavior. And then we've talked about uh, thinking uh, automatically. So that explains really why we're actually seeing what we're doing. So our aim on this particular paper is to improve decisions at retirement and during retirement. And the way we're doing it, if you, you had a look at the paper, is that we're introducing a consumption framing framework uh, to replace really an investment framework. The investment framework works for the build-up to retirement, absolutely. But once you need to start consuming, you need to change the framework to a consumption. We also then, as part of the model, create two mental, we create mental models so that people can trade off between two specific things. On the one hand, for themselves, providing an income. On the other hand, flexibility and providing for heirs. But Stephen will take us through a bit more detail uh, on that. And then we introduce the concept of the retirement income frontier to arrive at optimal investment strategies at retirement. Now, over there, we take into account individual circumstances, your age, gender, uh, et cetera, level of savings. But then we also start having a look at what is the individual's goals between those mental accounts. What are your goals and the level of those goals? And then we also have a look at individual's uh, risk preferences. And based on those three key items, you can come up with an optimal uh, strategy which would look vastly different from what is currently um, uh, proposed in the industry. So Stephen's going to take us through the, the, you know, the model in a little bit more detail and share with you some interesting insights. Before he does so, I just wanted to share with you, when we started this model, we started off with maybe an Excel version, and we realized, okay, you can't do it with some of the formulas. We needed to then uh, you know, do something a bit more sophisticated. So we started programming uh, the model. The first version of it, because it uses uh, simulation uh, techniques, uh, took about eight hours to run. So we would run it over weekends, uh, after hours, etc. And it's been automated so that you can now do 15, 15 minutes to get a full set uh, of results. But the interesting thing is to produce one set of results, you have to do about 200 million simulations. Um, to look at all the different things. And because we had to trial and test the thing, we, overall we ran 4 billion um, simulations in total. We crashed two hard drives. Um, I still have to tell the company about that. But um, the point is we did quite a lot of, a lot of testing. But I think I'm going to hand over to Stephen so he can really take you through the model. But some interesting insights from an example member that we ran the profile for. Thank you very much, John. Now, the framework we developed recognizes that in making a decision to convert accumulated savings into income, an individual has a balance meeting their remaining lifetime spending needs whilst having sufficient liquidity to provide for shock events and to provide a legacy to the heirs. Now, in our model, we developed two matrix, lifetime spending needs met, lifetime spending needs met, and expected financial reserve upon death. The lifetime spending needs met is defined as the longevity weighted proportion of incomes being met over a full lifetime of the pensioner at 90% certainty. The, the expected financial reserve upon death is defined as the 50th percentile of the present value of the remaining retirement assets upon death of the pensioner adjusted by the income provided by dependents where the income needs fell short.
Now, after running the 200 million simulations over various user profiles, we found some very interesting results. The model is flexible enough to incorporate any uh, user profile, but I'm going to elaborate on for a single male, a 65 utilizing 6.44% drawdown rate. Now, the, this drawdown rate corresponds to the current average uh, for out-of-fund retail living annuities published by CISA in 2016. 40 optimal asset allocations were used to model the living annuity portfolios. The graph uh, on the screen is created from varying the asset allocation and calculating the two me uh, metrics. The bottom of the graph is constructed from a low allocation to growth assets. And as the allocation growth assets increases, the graph reaches a point where the lifetime spending needs met is maximized. Continuing to increase the allocation to growth assets, the expected financial reserve increases at the expense of your lifetime spending needs. The impact of insufficient savings or income requirements that's too high can be illustrated as negative values. This will lead dependents to provide financial support. It can be seen that utilizing the CISA drawdown rate, it is unsustainable for a living annuity strategy. The level of lifetime spending needs rate is far below the sustainable level of 90% or more. This will force you to cut back on your spending or lower your withdrawal rate. Now, traditional out-of-fund living annuities with high retail fee structures is suboptimal when either aiming to maximize your expected financial reserve or your lifetime spending needs met. We found with an institutionally priced living annuity, you can increase your lifetime spending needs met and your expected financial reserve at the same asset allocation. This is purely a result due to the fee differences between out-of-fund and in-fund arrangements where essentially the same investment strategy can be adopted. For the same level of lifetime spending needs met, a more aggressive investment strategy could be followed with an institution, institutionally priced living annuity, increasing the expected financial reserve. The model was then adjusted to include with profit annuities as a portion of the portfolio. The first graph corresponds to 100% investment in a living annuity strategy. The calculation was redone another 20 times, where the initial income requirement increased by, uh, in, in increments of 5%. Uh, this creates the graph from left to right. We incorporate the functionality where any excess income received from the worth profit annuity can be reinvested in the living annuity proportion of the portfolio. What was surprising is that you can increase your lifetime spending needs met and your expected financial reserve by neutilizing an increasing amount of your initial income requirements. For a male member, at least 53% of the portfolio would need to be annuitized with a worth profit annuity in order to ensure that you receive a lifetime spending needs met of at least 90% and become sustainable. A retirement income frontier is then derived with the aim of maximizing your expected financial reserve. The frontier corresponds to the points on the bold line. It consists out of all the strategies with the highest expected financial reserve for a given level of initial income annuitized. These points also correspond to the points where the expected financial reserve is maximized for a given level of lifetime spending needs met. Utilizing this strategy, you can drastically increase your lifetime spending needs for a marginal decline in expected financial reserve. In this slide, you can see that by securing a portion of your income, you can increase your expected financial reserve by taking on a more aggressive strategy on the living annuity side. By following the strategy and annuitizing 20% of your initial income, 
you can increase your expected financial reserve with 13%. Next, we replace the with profit annuity with an inflation-linked annuity and ran the simulation again. The introduction of the inflation-linked annuity was found to be very expensive compared to a with profit annuity. This led to a drastic reduction in the expected financial reserve for marginal gain in lifetime spending needs. By switching from a with profit annuity to an inflation-linked annuity, you will forgo 20% of your expected financial reserve for the same level of lifetime spending needs met. After this, we replicated the previous uh, simulation for different member profiles, and we found some very interesting results. The general rule of 4% to, uh, applied to a living annuity strategy drawdown rate was found to hold both for males and females. This comes for higher retail fees or lower institutionally priced living annuities, producing lifetime spending needs of at least 90% in all cases. As the initial drawdown rate of 6.44% was found to be unsustainable for males and females, irrespective of whether other fund or in-fund uh, living annuities are utilized. At these levels of income requirements, sustainability can greatly be improved by in incorporating with profit annuities. No strategy for a female member was found to reach a lifetime spending needs level, level of at least 90%. However, by annuitizing 55% of the portfolio, a lifetime spending needs made of at least 80% can be achieved. The expected financial reserve for a female member was negative for most of the investment strategies. Requiring dependents to provide financial support with an expected present value ranging from 0 to 30% of the initial retirement capital. As high initial re uh, income requirements, the expected financial, expected financial reserve is negative. This applies to all possible strategies for males and females where the, uh, a 10% drawdown rate was required. In these instances, either the pension would need to reduce the initial income requirements or realize the extent to which their families would need to provide financial support. At these high levels of drawdown rates, the, the value of support that would need to be provided is significant. As an example, for a female member, a 65, utilizing a 10% drawdown rate, the value of support uh, ranges from 34% to 100% of the initial retirement capital. It is important to note that at these levels, it is still optimal to annuitize a portion of the fund to reduce the level of dependency from the dependents. Another interesting result is that an inverse relationship appears to exist between the level of initial income and the level of risk at which the investment strategy is optimized. This is attributed to a sequence of return risk playing a greater role as the drawdown rate increases. Now to reiterate, the introduction of life annuity significantly improves the sustainability of most of the strategies, where inflation-linked annuities are sub-optimal compared to with profit annuities. Annuitizing is not just important to enhance your lifetime spending needs met, but also to protect dependents to provide costly support later in life. As a greater proportion of the initial income is secured, the expected financial reserve increases. This is an important finding since much of the current thinking in the industry is that a living annuity is the best way to provide a bequest for dependents. As more of the initial income is secured with a worth profit annuity, 
great investment risk can be taken on the proportion of the living annuity side. And this will lead you to increase your expected financial reserve without impacting the level of lifetime spending needs made. And finally, blended strategies combining living and life annuity were found to be the most optimal when balancing the objective of lifetime spending needs met and expected financial reserve. Thank you very much, John. It's been an honor working with you. Thanks, Stephen. So I hope you find some of the results quite interesting because I think it does demystify uh, some, some, some thinking in the industry and it actually shows that some of the rules of thumb that we use, these things are actually myths and there are actually better ways, especially if you start combining uh, life annuities as a specific asset class within an overall uh, investment strategy. So I think to close off, I think a lot of you will be wondering, well, okay, that's all great, but how do we actually use you know, a model like this? So the practical application of the model is, is really quite simple. Um, it can be used by financial advisors because if you input uh, client details, if you input the level of lifetime spending needs that they require, uh, how certain they want that, if you input how much flexibility or the level of bequest that they want, as well as their risk tolerance uh, using risk profile questionnaires, you can actually come up with a reasonable uh, strategy often being a lot more optimal than the current investment strategies being, being recommended. So it can really be used as a practical tool. The other thing is that we've started seeing um, a lot of uh, automated advice-giving platforms starting to, to come online, uh, both internationally as well as in South Africa. To date, a lot of these, and they're called robo-advisors, are very simple in nature. It really is more about savings. So looking at your term to retirement, your risk profile, as well as how much you've saved, and then there's algorithms that actually recommend how you can invest. And it's all done automatically for the do-it-yourself investor. The model that we've constructed here can actually be used for robo-advice at retirement. Uh, really because if you include all your details and you include all those similar factors, it will actually recommend to you an optimal investment strategy, how much life annuity asset class to incorporate, how much living annuity, and then the asset allocation of the living annuity, all within one uh, uh, structure. And then the last thing is National Treasury is really, uh, we, we're waiting for the, the next version of the draft default uh, regulations that trustees need to put in place at retirement. I think we think that's a really good uh, initiative, but trustees need tools to help them decide on what is an optimal default strategy. Some funds use a life annuity as a default. Some funds use a living annuity as a default. As you'll see from the model here, the appropriate default is neither one or the other. It actually depends on the, how much spending needs met you want to achieve, uh, the bequest motive, and then the answer probably lies somewhere in between. So trustees can actually use the model to look at their and run it through member profiles to actually look at all of those factors. So for example, very high earners where the income drawdowns, uh, the initial income requirements are low as percentage, absolutely a living annuity makes sense. The model would support that. Where you have people that haven't saved sufficiently, um, increasing the component to the life annuity asset class is important. 
But what is important, the, the model doesn't say that full annuitization is actually optimal. And the reason for that is if people haven't saved sufficiently, um, you know, because of scarcity, it's more important to have your needs met a lot earlier. So the model actually uses a utility function to incorporate that. So hopefully we actually find that, we, we hope that this model is going to be quite useful in the industry to both improve advice, improve decisions at retirement, and would hopefully then spur on product providers to start providing uh, hybrid uh, uh, annuity type structures that combine the benefits of both living and life annuities. Thank you. Hey, that went a lot faster than I thought. I didn't get a chance to wave my warning signs or anything, much to my disappointment. Um, but like I said, the paper when I read it I found quite interesting. Um, they've introduced this idea that life, um, living annuities versus life annuities is not about extremes. There's this 50 shades of grey in between that we can consider. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about that. But questions now for the two authors, if anyone has, especially the technical details. I'm sure we're all keen to hear about those. Yeah, one in the back. Uh, John and Neil, yeah. Um, obviously, life expectancy will have a big impact uh, on the on the results. How did you model uh, life expectancy? Yeah, I think absolutely right. Life expectancy does come into play. What we did use is we used actual annuity rates. But I think it comes through in really the utility function. So we used uh, really a mortality table that's generally accepted uh, in the industry. You can actually adjust that. Um, if you assume that the mortality people are going to be living a bit uh, longer, what it would do is it would, it would up the amount of uh, life annuity um, uh, of, the, of the asset class. Obviously, if you, if you know a little bit more about the individual and uh, that, they're not, that mortality is a bit higher, therefore they're not going to live as long, what it would do is it recommend a lot more uh, uh, living annuities. So I think at the moment it typically uses the basic uh, factors that people would use, but there is definitely more scope to incorporate other factors such as socioeconomic factors to get a more accurate picture of the individual. Um, which then could optimize the strategy better. But what we have found is that we believe that as a starting point, uh, this is definitely a far superior method compared to what's currently being, being out there, which is there really isn't anything to comprehensively look at living life within one framework. And absolutely, there's a lot of scope to look at other rating factors to get a, a lot, lot more accuracy um, around that. Hi, John. Arthur Elsia. Thank you so much for your paper to you and Stephen. They're really fascinating. Two questions. The first one is, if you've got somebody who hasn't got enough money at retirement, how do you determine their risk tolerance? Do you ask a person or uh, how do you get that? That's one of the factors. The other question is, a couple of years ago there was a paper by Jan Rousseau on uh, Jan Swanepoel picking up his very point, saying if you buy a with-profit annuity, you score from the early dyers in the pensioner pool. So you get a tremendous return the longer you live and draw from the pool. So what you're really doing is you're giving your with-profit annuitants the benefit of the early dyers in the pensioner pool, and that's making up for the difference 
in the, in the returns that you're getting. The, the question really is, behaviorally, if you were to say to the person retiring, we're going to buy you with profit annuity, and if you live for a long time, you're going to score tremendously, but if you die tomorrow, you're going to lose all that capital in with profit. How do you address that? Because the person is going to say, but I don't want to lose my money in the real life. No, thanks. I think I'm going to start with the last question first. So I think it's that kind of thinking that has really driven a lot of the behavior, I think, in the industry, where people think, if I go into a, a life annuity, uh, I'm going to lose the money if I die early. What the results actually show is that by including a proportion of the life annuity as an asset class, not fully, but a proportion, the first amount that you actually include actually improves the expected financial legacy, which is uh, expected financial reserve, which is the value um, either of what's people, if it's negative, people will have to provide you, your dependents will have to provide you with support. If it's positive, it means there's an expected value left on your death. So by including a proportion of life annuities, specifically of the with profit type, actually improves um, the bequest motive. Uh, there, is, there is absolutely a point at which it goes the other way. Uh, but the model actually caters for that, and you can actually work out uh, you know, the, most, the most optimal point. I think the point we're trying to make is that there are certain thinking in the industry, and it's not necessarily correct. You need to look at the overall uh, investment strategy, and by incorporating some of these, and you can call it a longevity bond or, or something, it has a lot of interesting properties that is potentially unexpected until we, we show the results. On your first question on the risk, really that's why you know, it's, it's important to have an advisor to go through a process initially with an individual to assess what is the risk tolerance of an individual. For this model, you actually need three things. You need the level of, of uh, lifetime spending needs met, so how, what proportion do you want to get met? Do you want a high certainty of income met or a moderate or a low? Also, do you want to provide a high level of bequest, a medium level of bequest, or a low level of, of bequest. Um, and then the third input is really your risk tolerance. Now there's been a lot of research around risk profiling questionnaires, some are good, some are bad, but I think we've got to a point now where there are, there's a set of questions that actually provides a reasonably good indication of risk profile, and obviously advisors only use it as an indication, robo-advisors would use it. Um, as is with the individual's input, but it's usually constructed in a way that tries to get the best uh, indication of that. I think we've got uh, Johan. Thanks, John. Um, I was just thinking if you introduce a deferred annuity into your program as an option as well, not just a, a life annuity from date of retirement, the deferred annuity that kicks in at 80 or 85 or something, wouldn't that change the outcome because that will address your lifetime, what you call life, lifetime income, meets, income needs met quite significantly for, for that portion of, the, of your model and then you have a, a bigger living annuity up to that age. Have you thought about it, that, what do they do, to, what, how do you think, what will the outcome be? Yeah, we, it's a great question because we originally wanted to include that in the, the modeling, but as you go through, I have renewed respect for people that you know, write papers, it's a lot of hard work. So 
we had an idea, we wanted to include it, we didn't. Uh, it is definitely something that one can explore a little bit more. Um, it, including deferred, we, we haven't run the model, but I would expect that it would obviously improve outcomes. Whether it is more optimal than from the day one having a life annuity, I don't think so, because from day one you get the mortality credits on every payment thereafter, which you wouldn't on the deferred. The deferred, it will only be from that period onwards that you get the, the mortality credits. But again, we, we were surprised by some of the results we got here. We might be surprised by the results we get if we include deferred. The other reason is we wanted to put a model together that's practical, that the industry can actually implement immediately. You can now already include uh, these in, in, in single structure uh, type products. Deferred annuities aren't really well uh, available, and the pricing thereof, at least from what I've seen, are pretty expensive. But I think once those start being uh, made more available, it would be worthwhile rerunning uh, the model, absolutely. Dwayne. Um, thanks, guys, for a very interesting paper. And I think um, the trade-off between life and living annuities is, is quite a, a relevant and, and appropriate thing to be looking at. Um, just some questions on some of the modeling that, that I had from reading the paper. So I wanted to confirm you, in the paper, I think it says that you use normal distribution for, for the asset classes. I just wanted to chat about that a little bit. Um, the model is really trading off upside and downside, and obviously the one side of that is measured with that 90% confidence. Um, with the normal model, you, you might have a little bit of um, issues in terms of the tails of, of that distribution and how that represents risk, uh, in particular in those tails, and that might have a bit of on that 90th percent, so maybe some comments from you guys on that. And then the second question, I wasn't quite clear on how you treated inflation in the, in the, in, in the paper. From what I could pick up, the modeling is done in real space and the inflation is treated as a deterministic 6%. Is that the case? And if so, would that have an effect on the averaging formula of the with profit annuity model and um, also the results about the inflation-linked annuity being suboptimal? Thanks. All right. So, look, we looked at quite a lot of um, distributions to actually use uh, for the modeling. So we did use a normal distribution. Again, we wanted to make sure that these things are practical. Um, I think we also then tested the results that we got from international results. There have been quite a lot of papers done around uh, the income frontier. Our one is a bit different uh, in the sense that we introduced the value of support for dependents. But the shape of the curve that we got was identical to what we saw, um, for example, in studies done in Australia, the US. So although in theory there could be some impact, we don't suspect that it'll be that material in the overall scheme of things, because also what you're trying to do is you're trying to assess strategies relative to each other. But absolutely, there are different uh, models. We definitely did not test, you know, because of the amount of simulations you need to do, to have different distributions, etc. It could probably be quite an interesting study to have a look at that. But I think in concept, what we're trying to do is a framework to assess strategies relative uh, to each other. Um, and the shape definitely confirmed, you know, what, what international studies uh, have actually shown. Can you just repeat the second Second one. It was, uh, I mean, the, probably the answer is, is linked. The second question was about inflation. I understood it to inflation. be uh, the 6% and whether that would have a, an impact on that averaging formula in the with profit annuity and also the suboptimality of the inflation linked annuity, that result. So we worked in real space. So 
because income, we're trying to look at income from a real perspective. So inflation, when we actually ran the models, in, the inflation assumption was set at 6%, with the real returns around that being, being essentially modeled. And it's because over the long run, we're looking for real income. Uh, because of that, you couldn't actually model, for example, fixed annuities, because you know, it would skew, skew the results. Again, it's something that you know, one can look at enhancing the model uh, a little bit further. In terms of the, the, the formula, because we're working in more real income for in individuals, it's more about the real uh, returns and the distribution around that. I don't think it would impact that much the, um, you know, the, the with profit result in the sense of including it is a good thing, but it could, it could adjust the percentages. But again, you, know, you need a common framework to assess various strategies. Um, that's a potentially another one where we could enhance the model a little bit further and test actually how it impacts the end result. But thanks for that. Uh, good comment. We've still got time for a couple more questions. The one question here, in, uh, there's a question in front. Thanks. Thank you very much. I think it's been a, a very interesting paper. And, very practical. I mean, I myself am retired, so I can kind of identify with a lot of the issues. The, the challenge in some ways is um, people, as you've indicated, don't think rationally. And financial advisors, unfortunately, do think rationally. So as long as they still have these massive fee flows coming from living annuities, it's going to be very hard to change their behavior because they're, they're looking at the one hand maybe getting 2%, 1% of, of the capital if they go into a a lifetime and you go to a normal with profit annuity or fixed annuity compared to getting hmm. they try for upwards of 0.75 percent um, on a living annuity every year so you can't get financial advice to work properly in this kind of environment I think that's the first challenge um, the other area that concerns me is living in the with profit annuities are subject as far as I know to sharing of mortality profits and so if, in fact, mortality reduces, which is the, the theory, um, then you're going to see them in the long run not being able to distribute investment returns fully to the, to the members. They'll have to actually hold back in anticipation of uh, increasing, uh, re reducing mortality, increasing longevity. So uh, was this something that you built in, or was it kind of it's just something hanging around in the background? Okay. Now, those are excellent questions in terms of so let's deal with the one around fees. So definitely at the moment there is, as we mentioned, business models for advisors are more skewed towards providing living rather than life annuities. It's definitely something that I think regulators can look at. I think it was highlighted in a previous conference um, by Swanepoel and Lodia, I think in 2012, they actually highlighted this issue, you know, uh, life annuities provide a very good benefit with mortality credits, and we should start looking at how we, uh, you know, look at the remuneration. I think there is potential, that's an area of also innovation for the industry to look at structures that can actually uh, level the playing field uh, around that, as well as the regulators looking at that. But you, you're absolutely correct. If we don't either innovate and get some of the regulation, one or the other or both, um, it is going to be very tough um, to, to change that. So we put the challenge out there to product providers as well as the, uh, the regulators. Just in terms of um, you know, the, the inclusion of, of with profit, 
you're absolutely right. So with profit, um, depending on the different structures, you know, if mortality is uh, lighter than expected, they, that comes through as an experience item. So it is an, it is an area that, um, you know, we did actually highlight in the model because in inflation linked annuities, you're guaranteed, except for some annuities after a 20-year period, it could, depending on market conditions, convert to with profit. That's the benefit of an inflation linked. However, the size difference between an inflation linked annuity that would address that issue versus the with profit from an economic value point of view is so vastly different that you'd need to have significant differences in mortality before it becomes viable to say inflation linked annuities are better. The other thing is you must make sure that you go to a with profit provider that has expertise in looking at the mortality, provides various guarantees um, around that to try and minimize that effect. You do get, there are with profit annuities out there that try and inflate the initial income requirements, knowing that you know, there's a pool and that will impact uh, you know, the increases down the line. So what you want is a with profit that actually is absolutely best, uh, you know, your best estimate up front with maybe some conservatism, as well as an allowance for future improvements. It is an issue, uh, but the, the model tries to address that by looking at the big difference between, so inflation-linked annuities will address that, but you need to look at the size difference between the bequest that it ultimately would give you in that risk-free environment versus a worth profit. And the framework tries to quantify that, and at the moment, the difference is too vast to justify it, subject to getting an appropriate with profit provider that does all the right things, as I've mentioned before. Just, um, okay, there's a, one uh, final question, we have um, time. So just a couple of, John, uh, thank you for uh, up here. Hello, John. Yep, there you go. Um, uh, thank you for a good paper and a and definitely a useful addition to the debate on annuitization. Uh, just a couple of questions. One following up from Dwayne's question, just on the inflation-linked annuity. Um, you talked about real rates being the driver of the pricing of that annuity, and from what we've seen, um, those real rates in the pricing of the inflation-linked annuity tend to be quite low and tend to approximate government bond real rates. If there, was, uh, if there were higher real rates on offer beyond government bond real rates, would that affect um, the, the outcome potentially? Um, and then the second question, uh, it's linked to the with profit side of things. On the with profit side of things, obviously you've got new solvency regulations coming in for insurance companies. But the question is, um, does any of the work you've done, um, uh, be, uh, is, is, is it impacted by potential for solvency regulations which require uh, insurers to hold more capital against more risky investments, notably equities. Um, and I guess linked to that is, you know, as the outlook for equity returns looks somewhat more muted in, in, in the coming years, is, is, is that likely to have an impact um, on, you know, the outcomes that clients might expect uh, from a with-profit um, annuity in a, in a sort of low-growth, low-return low sort of world? Thank you. Okay, let's start uh, just in terms of the assumptions. So we have tried to introduce assumptions that try to look through uh, market cycles are supposed to be for long-term, retirements are long-term. So even though you're expecting muted returns, we've seen low returns, uh, the market's been flat the last two years, we try to look at more long-term. 
we looked at various best practice uh, assumptions out there, various consulting houses, to try and you know, temper the, the assumptions, but it is sensitive to the assumptions, absolutely. Uh, but we've tried to address it in that, and that's why you need to you know, re revise this thing uh, you know, constantly over time. In terms of inflation linked annuities, if you, so inflation linked annuities can come up a lot better on condition that the pricing is better. If the pricing is better because of increased yields in terms of reduced uh, capital requirements, uh, or any other factors, maybe uh, uh, more realistic uh, uh, mortality assumptions instead of very heavily, uh, you know, padded assumptions, then absolutely. What the model is showing that there's just a massive difference between inflation-linked annuity pricing and with profit. The difference is so big that therefore it is, 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 is uneconomical. And for rational people, if you have an extra rand, you know, you're going to put it where you're going to get the biggest bang for buck on a relative basis. But absolutely, if we get higher yields and uh, other things that could improve the pricing of inflation linked, it would definitely improve the outcomes quite substantially. And then the second, the, the, the last one was around the uh, uh, solvency. Now, if solvency increases uh, capital requirements, so the model includes an assumption for capital. So obviously, if that goes up, it does make the with profit less attractive relative to an inflation-linked annuity. Um, it depends on, I'm not an expert in solvency, whether that would also impact the pricing of inflation-linked uh, annuity, but let's say it doesn't. Then what it would mean is the graph that Stephen showed is the with profit will come down. However, it needs to, again, come down substantially, meaning the capital charges need to be so, so much more relative to what we've modeled for inflation-linked to start becoming better. But you're right, it does have an influence, but it must be a huge influence before the results are shown to be uh, invalid. That's our time is up for that presentation, so thanks very much again to John and Stephen. Thank you for the paper, thank you for the hard work, congratulations for the prizes that it won.